Uh, I hope you did not show up this morning ready for kind of like a, a chill, easy-to-digest post-Christmas sermon. That's kind of what I intended to, to, to write and to, to maybe even present, uh, just if, if I'm honest, emotionally very distracted by all the good things like Christmas and family and travel. However, that's not what happened um, as I open God's Word in preparation for, for this. Um, so, as is always the case, but to a, and more like a, a just a, a larger degree, uh, man, I, I was encouraged um, in, in some unbelievable ways uh, by this. So, that's your disclaimer. That's your warning. If you have a pen, uh, use the note page. If you like to study your Bible, you're in the right place. If you don't like to study your Bible, uh, I, my prayer, honestly, is, is that today, that as we, as we uh, almost do a, a Bible study sermon is what I'm going to describe this, that maybe you would go, man, this is, this is fun. This is powerful. So again, this is your disclaimer, um, and, and it's, not a, it's not a warning, because warning you know, implies there's a bad thing coming. This is a very good thing coming. Um, so please open your Bible, grab a pen if you have one, ask your neighbor uh, if you don't have one, because you may need it. Uh, and I would even say, just outside of those of you who have some, some pretty strong disciplines and you've already got like a Bible study working, I would encourage you, based on some of the notes here, because um, I'm not going to do everything that I mention. I'm going to end up starting some theological trails and some, some concepts that, that we're not going to be able to finish this morning. Um, and so I, I would encourage you, if you don't have a routine or a rhythm, or, or maybe you're in the gap waiting for the Bible study in a year to, to start in a couple of days, whatever, that, that you would, based on some notes this morning, uh, study it for a day or two or three or, or a week uh, after today. Again, these are not my concepts or my thoughts. We're, we're going to kind of dig through uh, God's Word and, and wrap up this series. But in wrapping up this series, more things started than ended uh, for, for me and, and based on this text. And if None of that made sense. It will uh, here in just a few minutes. Um, we, we do have uh, our, our students for, for certain and even some, some kids in the room. Uh, if you are a child in here, uh, when's the last time or have you played hide-and-seek in the past week? Raise your hand if you played hide-and-seek in the past week. You guys know. Okay, okay. all right. We've got a, a young at heart back there. Uh, that's kind of what we're talking about. Uh, this morning, and, and as we wrap up this God With Us series, we're, we're going to look at the, the culmination. I think that's the title in your program is The Culmination. So just to recap, put us all on the same page, Isaiah uh, kind of proclaimed, there's a proclamation, hey, this is going to happen in 700 years. And then we looked at Luke's anticipation with the baby announcement, he's coming, he's coming, it's only a couple months away. And then uh, we looked at John's, uh, he's here, and in Christ, he was among you. And then we look all the way at the end at, at Revelation. And this is certainly the culmination. This is the end of, what the, of this God with us uh, concept. Um, and so what, what, what should be the end of, of our series, again, in, in many ways, is very much the, the beginning. Um, and, uh, and so uh, fitting with the, the time of year, right? We don't just say Merry Christmas. If we do say Merry Christmas, we're saying goodbye to the Christmas season. What do we say next? Happy New Year, right? We're looking forward to something. So uh, theologically, the same thing is happening with our series as is with the time of year. So we've looked back and celebrated birth of Christ. Christmas Eve was wonderful, beautiful, uh, and, and awesome. Uh, today uh, is when we say Happy New Year and look forward. And in, according to the text and even with our series, we're also looking forward um, as we've celebrated Christ's first coming. We have a, something even more important that we're very much looking forward to, aren't we? And this is the, the ultimate, the permanent uh, I, uh, you know, fulfillment of the, the God with us, this Emmanuel concept 
in Scripture, right? So if you didn't think it could get any better uh, after Christmas, uh, we all know now that we were wrong. And kids, if you didn't think presents uh, couldn't get any better, we're going to talk about presents, uh, right? And if you've had kids, you know what's better, the, the gifts or the people in the room, right? And, and if anything, as, as we get older, like we talked about, the gifts mean so much because of the people. It's just what's, what happens as we get older. We value the, the presence of people more than the presence of people. Uh, so in Christ, we received a great gift from God. Uh, this week, we look at the presence of God one day, like we sang about, uh, when we're going to be in the presence of God. And, and, and you guys don't have the privilege of, of, of knowing the, 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 the thoughts or how we connect God's Word as, as it's being taught, like maybe Dave and I do for the most part, because every week that we sing worship songs, it always has everything to do with the sermon. And so when I worship down there, like I'm, I'm connecting dots with, with, with Bible verses and, and spiritual truths that, that are just like, man, I, and today was, was well done. So for our, our, our director, our, our worship leader, and for the band, I mean, that's maybe some of the dots will connect. I'm going to stop rambling, and if you can't tell, I'm, I'm excited to, to dig into this. Um, what, what I learned this week that kind of helped connect some dots was one of the songs we just sang, Joy to the World. Right? We, we sing it as a Christmas song, and it's only really been a Christmas song since the 20th century, uh, written way back in 1719 by an, an English hymn writer uh, by the name of Isaac Watts. It was actually written to glorify the, the, the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the third verse kind of makes that a little more clear. It says, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as curse is found. And so this, this is a, a song about Christ's second advent that all of a sudden got kind of roped into all these Christmas carols uh, about Christ's first advent. Really interesting. And, and one theologian that I, that I read said this, and I think this is really true. He said, we need to be reminded at Christmas of the fact that the celebration of the incarnation is inherently eschatological. What that means is his first coming has everything to do with his second coming. We cannot properly celebrate Christ's uh, birth and, and, and the incarnation of God in Christ, him becoming flesh, without it begging the question, okay, but what about his, his second coming? Um, and I think it's really easy to, to kind of get content even on this side of heaven with all God has given us, with the gifts he's given us, and forget about he is doing all of this to call you and to call me into his presence one day. That's, that's what we're doing here today. That's what we're doing when we leave this, this room and when we study God's Word on our own and when we uh, obey uh, God's Word by the help of the Holy Spirit. All, all of this is, is, is us heading in a trajectory toward eternity with God. I forget that sometimes. So this study was, was great uh, for me. And so uh, if, if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 22, or 21 actually, uh, chapter 21 of Revelation the culmination, the crescendo of this Emmanuel concept that doesn't stop with Christmas. It begs something even greater. Revelation 21, 3 through 5 says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. The death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away, and he who has seat, was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all 
things new. Um, this is one of the last proclamations that, that we read in Scripture, just, and this is actually kind of the sentence on the end of God's redemptive story, which we'll unpack here in just a minute. This is a powerful, powerful moment in time. Uh, again, it, it's, it's forward. We, we're used to looking back and, and seeing all kinds of spiritual ideas, God moving in throughout history, but this is kind of the one uh, uh, event in, in God's redemptive history, because he's not done. Uh, that, that we have to look forward to, and just kind of in t- t- some context, depending on, and this is not, uh, this is not a sermon on the end times. Uh, this, is not, um, this is not an eschatological sermon. Uh, that's for a different day. And so depending on how you read Revelation, uh, this takes place after the Great Tribulation, uh, the reign of Christ, however uh, figurative or, or literal. I think most see that as, as a literal, the defeat of Satan, the, the, the great white throne judgment. And then all of a sudden, Paul describes the new heaven and new earth in the direct presence of God forever. And it's here that God says, no more pain, no more crying, no more death. No more mourning. He makes all things new. And in that moment, God will be with his people. And the story's over. That's what we get to look forward to today. Um, So in that text are two things, and they're two words that start with the letter P, and and we're going to kind of build off of this. One is the pursuit, God's pursuit of us. And the second thing is, is the permanence of this whole dwelling idea. Uh, So we see the pursuit of God, basically because it forces us to ask why he hadn't done it sooner, and it forces us to remember all the things he's done along the way to pursue us. One of the songs we just sang a minute ago, I can't think of the words, but as we were singing it, we could just sing that all morning. And as long as we understand uh, biblically what's happening here, that's the the extent of our, our worship this morning, is that he pursues us, and we sing the song about running into his arms this is a story of, of hide and seek and pursuing one another. And, and in that pursuit of us, we realize all he has done to bring us back to himself. And then we, like I said, the permanence piece in this text highlights the, the finality of our existence with God at the point in, in, in redemptive history that does not compare to anything we know as of yet. It's all been very temporary. All of our experience with God has been very temporary. So God's pursuit of us and the permanence of our dwelling with him finally and him with us. So let's talk about the pursuit thing first because we can't fully appreciate the permanence of heaven without first looking back at, at everything he's done to pursue you and to pursue me because he's done a lot of work. It's not like you got a head start on God and you're faster than him and he can't catch you. Okay, this is when I when I say hide and seek, it's not that he can't find you. Uh, he's actually the, the world's greatest seeker. Okay, uh, raise your hand, kids, if you're a really good hider. Like you're you're great at hide and seek. Like you're small, you fit in tight places, or you're brave, you can hold your breath for a long time. I don't know. Like I, as I grow taller, I, I could fit in fewer places, but I think I was a pretty good finder. Okay, I wasn't brave enough to go in certain dark places. I, I was I was brave enough to look there, but not to like hide there. Right? I remember one time hiding with my cousin Justin, and, and he forgot about me, and so I'm left hiding, and I'm getting scared, and I'm worrying, but you don't want to come out because you might get found, right? But three hours later, you're going, maybe the game's over? I don't know. Uh, and so 
So I was a much better uh, finder than, than I was a, a seeker, but God is the best seeker. And what we know is, is that humankind, you and me, in the form of Adam, which means that had he not done it, you would have done it, I would have done it. I think God knew that, but we see in Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, this game of hide and seek, which leads to God's aggressive pursuit for you, begin. So read this with me. Uh, this is where it starts. Remember, our, our text this morning is in Revelation 22, and we're going way back to Genesis 3 to see where this whole thing began. Uh, verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, in the cool, or the wind of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? It's kind of like saying, 99, 100, ready or not, here I come. What I mean is God knew the sin and that leading to shame and our shame and what that does for Adam, Eve, and what that does for us. The effects of sin haven't changed a whole lot, if at all. And God knew that though he could see Adam through trees as though he could actually hide from God, God knew that an aggressive pursuit for the heart of man had begun. That man had hid his heart from God, who he was in perfect communion with. Uh, the, the, word for, uh, the word for presence, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That word is face. They were in perfect communion with God, walking in the cool of the day, the breeze. Like they, they could see God, point at God, high five God, laugh with God maybe. We don't have a lot of details other than to know it was a, I see you, you see me. You hid from me, and where are you? And I think if anything was hidden, it was man's heart from God. And from that moment, two things happened. Separation, that, that we know what sin, we, we grew up defining it like this, or at least I did sin. What is sin? Well, it's, it's the thing that separates you from God, right? And those effects are massive for us. They actually affect our eternity. We're not able to spend eternity again with God like he set it up. Like he will work hard, as though he had to work hard. Like he will work to put it back. We were in perfect communion with God. Sin happened. We believed the lie from the devil, which again still happens today. And, and before we know it, our heart gets farther and farther from God. So I think, I think four things happen. And we're going to go through these four things. And it's a lot. And there's, there's some Bible verses here. But every extra word I say more than what you feel like I need to say is, is telling the story louder and louder of all God did to win your heart back. And I think he had to overcome four things as we look through the Bible. I think there are four degrees of separation between God and our heart. That only God could start and only God could sustain and that only God could finish. And these are the things that he did to win your heart back, to make you want to turn and run into his arms. These are things that God did. See, the first problem was an identification problem. We did not know God. I'll call this the, the unknowability of God. I made that up. Maybe someone else has done that before. I don't think it's a real word, but it, it communicates what we need to know. The unknowability of God was a problem. And so what did God do? Well, in Romans 7, Paul talks about the law like this. I wouldn't have known that coveting was a sin had the law said, hey, don't covet. And by that one law, we get a, a more clear idea of who God is, don't we? And then John 14, 7, uh, Jesus says this in helping us understand and know who God is. If you really know me, you will know my Father. 
And so what God does, because we're left on earth powerless to truly understand and know God, what did God do then? Did he just step back and say, well, you broke the law, you figure it out. You, you left and you hid from me, you figure it out. No, God, this is God's first step of a four-step sprint to catch you and to turn your heart toward him as he identified himself. He made himself knowable through the law. He teaches us what's, what's valuable, what's important, what his character, what his nature is. Did you know that, that Christianity is, is, is the only belief system? We won't call it a religion. We'll explain why, or I will in a minute. Uh, but Christianity is the only religion or, or belief system uh, where, where its followers know everything they need to know in order to properly relate to God and to please God and to know God. Everything we need to know, and, and the, the law, and, and through the prophets, uh, which, by the way, are recorded in this book called the Bible, best-selling book of all time. And there, I think there's a reason for that. And so God makes himself knowable to us that we might properly and rightly respond to him. That's, that's the work of God, and it's the first step of a four-step sprint to catch your heart. Otherwise, we're left unsure of how to approach God. The unknowability of God was a problem. God solved that problem. The second problem that, that we see, again, this is about God restoring everything, us perfect communion again with God, no tears, no crying, that revelation scene, right? It's starting back in Genesis chapter 3, and this is what he has to do next because the next problem we have is the force of sin. Anybody deal with sin in the room? Maybe you don't think you do. Those of us who follow Jesus and who recognize our need for his death on the cross, we, we know that there's a sin problem. The cutest kid in this room has a sin problem, right? We're, we're born not, be, not needing to be told how to lie or how the world is all about us. Developmentally speaking, that's proven. Like, we're selfish, we don't have to be taught to be this way. We have to have sin worked out of our life. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. And this is, a, this is either a moral behavior with moralism, behavior modification, or we realize the need is much deeper than that, isn't it? It's a, it's a sin problem. We need the power of the Spirit to, to fix and to clean that. Uh, Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us sinners, the Bible says we were dead in our sin. What can dead people do? Nothing. God had to do this. God had to overcome your sin problem. Second Corinthians 5.21 said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for him. Uh, uh, in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we make a trade there. So God takes one step and he identifies himself. He takes another step and he solves the sin problem in our life. And what does that do? That justifies you. It's a theological term. It's actually a, a, a legal term. Like you are now justified before God. How can you stand in front of God and say, I want to know you and I want to know you again and I want you to know me and I, I, I want to live how you tell me to live because, oh my gosh, look at you. The only way we can stand in his presence is in the name of Jesus. And it's Jesus standing or sitting at the right hand of God saying, he's mine. So there's identification and through uh, Christ's perfect life and death on the cross, there's a justification. But what if he would have left it at that? Isn't that frustrating to know that, that you're, you had a sin problem, to legally know that it's solved, but relationally from here on out not have the ability to then walk in a way that, that, that honored God? So God had to solve that problem now and actually not just fix your, your mind and change your mind, but he had to change your heart. And so now with the, we've been, God's been identified, he's justified us, and now he sanctifies 
us. Again, what a gift. This is the third step in a four-step sprint to capture our heart again. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. We can only do that by the power of the Spirit. I mean, have you said no to sin recently? Uh, Maybe you, you had a good day. Have you said no to sin on a consistent basis? That's the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do, are, are things that used to be a problem for you, used to be a temptation for you, used to be a rut for you, are, are, they, are they no longer a problem for you today? Well, it's because you're not, you're not overcome by the power of sin anymore. Do you sin, disobey God? Sure, that might happen until we die, and I hate that. I hate that. But is it a consistent, regular problem? No, it's impossible. If, 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 we, if the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of us, we're going to hate our sin. Maybe practically speaking, we get accountability for our sin. We, we fall on our knees, uh, not because of, of, of shame or guilt, but because of conviction for our sin, because we know it displeases God. And besides all the, the logical and emotional things, there's a power at work within us that enables us to say no to sin and yes to God and that's the sanctification of God. That's the third step. We, we can't fully know and, and obey God without being sanctified. And we're being made into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is powerful. And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed, that's you and me, being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's work in your life. God's work in my life. This is not something you muster up. Then the last step that he has to take to capture your heart and prepare you for eternity with him, God with us finally and and fully forever, the last thing he has to do is kind of a logistical deal. He's got to deal with the the mortal shell that we call a body, right? Uh, and, and, And kind of indicative of the mortal shell is the existence of death. So we're, our bodies are still subject to decay, right? And if you're under 25, you don't know what that means. Uh, but what that means is that, that you're falling apart, okay? Your body is under a curse of death, which sounds way harsher than it actually is because we've already dealt with the spiritual sin problem. But, but there is a literal first death kind of fading away. Metal things rust and, and new things get torn. Even the new Christmas presents get broken, like new things fall apart and our bodies are no, uh, they're, they're no exception to that. And so the Lord must deal with that if we expect to spend even a, a millisecond in the presence and in the glory of God. So it's more than just logistical. There, there are some heavy spiritual uh, realities going on that we can't see that have to do with death. And all we know is that death gets thrown into the lake of fire along with our enemy, by the way. And so there's no more death. And so he says, like he said in Revelation and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he makes all things what? New, along with your body. So, uh, man, we're, we're going to see people sprinting on stage that, that might otherwise walk slowly. And, and you're, gonna, you're not going to need the, the, the crutcher, the, the helper, the, the, the button to, to call for, for help anymore. You're going to be able to run uh, and you're going to be able to maybe fly. We don't know that yet. We're looking for scriptural evidence, but we can't find it. Uh, but there's all kinds of things. And again, it's not about the new physical body, right? He changes our mind. He changes our heart. And then he gets to our 
dwelling place of our, of our soul right now, of, our, of the Spirit of God, which is just this flesh, mortal, dying thing called our body. Uh, Philippians 3.21 says, uh, Who will, God, uh, transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body? Remember, we're going to be made in His image. Our body will be like His body. This is mind-blowing stuff by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We couldn't handle an ounce of His glory. The Bible says no one has seen God. I think Moses came closest, and it was like the back. It only lasted a little bit, and it was like this temporary, like, awe-inspiring kind of situation, but no one's full-on seen God and, and lived after the curse of the fall. But God is not okay with that. God is not okay with that. He's doing things. He's taking four massive steps that you could not have taken to capture our heart again, and we will be in the presence of God with a non-sin-tainted, non-dying body able to withstand the glory of God. So we know that heaven is the restoration of all things that were broken back in Genesis 3. God is restoring everything back. Could it have lasted? If you were Adam, if you were Eve, could you have done it? The answer is no. It was inevitable. But for God's creation to withstand his glory and to see him for everything he is, he knew that he would have to first justify, sanctify, and then glorify us. So the last thing we see, or the second thing we see in this text, is the permanence. And and this is interesting, because you look back in Scripture, and every dwelling place of God has been temporary, has it not? What was the first dwelling place of God? The tabernacle, right? It was like this this remote, uh, movable uh, place where God dwelled. After tabernacle, and they set up shop in Canaan, uh, in the, the era of the kings, and they built temples, And inside the temple, there was this place that only one man could go one day a year. And even then, it was the the full presence of God. But it wasn't wasn't God himself. It wasn't face to face. And again, one man, one time a year, the priest. So we have the tabernacle. It lasted a period of years. The temple lasted a period of years in which only one man, one time a year experienced the presence of God imperfectly. And then we see Jesus, by far the most impressive revelation of God, with us. But he was limited to space and time. He was in one place at a time and and only for another period of years. But again, what what a great gift to us to make God knowable. And then he in himself uh, justifies and, and by his spirit we are sanctified. But the dwelling of God in Christ on the earth with us was temporary. And then the last dwelling place we see right now of of God is His Spirit in you and in me. This is in the church. And this is only going to last a period of years. A couple thousand years, maybe another 50, maybe another, I don't know, minute. Let's let's just see. Let's wait. That'd be awesome. Man, that'd be cool. We don't know how much longer this is going to last, but we know that this dwelling place of God, the Spirit of Christ in me and in you, we know it's temporary. So what makes Revelation 21.3 such a big deal is that this is permanent. Hide and seek is over, which is a good thing, by the way. Hide and seek is over. God has won the heart of all of his people over the course of time. 
God's redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation is now done. He has done all the work. Again, you couldn't outrun God, but these are not just ways that he caught up to you. These are ways that he prepared you, isn't it? When this hit me, this, this, this made everything I'm saying worth saying. Otherwise, this is a history lesson of the steps God took in, in what order, which, which in and of themselves have intense theological implications, but here's the point. Every step that he took to pursue you, little did we know he was preparing us. He's preparing you. Every step to, to win our heart and to justify and to sanctify and to glorify, these are all ways not just to get us, but to, in the meantime, during the process, in his perfect wisdom and not exerting any ounce of energy he didn't have to exert, having all sovereignty and, and, and having the ability to make us turn and about face if he snapped his fingers, he cares still on, on, on a global redemption level about your heart. Every step was strategic, not just to get you to turn and run to his arms, but to chase your heart, to chase my heart. And it's not going to be temporary. It's going to be permanent. The word there for he will dwell in verse 3, um, it, it's not a noun like, like the, the word tabernacle. It's not a noun like we see at most other places the only other place it's a verb is back in Leviticus when God says in, the, in the, the, the tabernacle behind this sheet, God will dwell with man. And God's people went, oh my gosh, like that's amazing. God's in there. God's over there. Look at that form. Look at the shape. God, his essence is dwelling over there. And again, what a great gift, but that's nothing compared to Revelation 21. And then every other time the word tabernacle is used, it's, it's used as a, as a noun, the dwelling place. And as a verb, it just it connotates, it has this, this meaning, or as a verb, it has this implication of, of, um, of uh, what's, what's the word here? Uh, perfect, unending preexistence. We see this in John 14, 3, when Jesus says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to be with myself. And he says, where, uh, and, and where I am, you may be also. That word, I am, does the same thing. It means to exist or to be and without measure, without limit. It's the same word he used in John 14 when he said, I am. What was he saying? He's referring to his preexistence which implies a continual, eternal existence. So this is the kind of dwelling now that's going to take place. It's not a, I'm going to get tabernacle with you, and it's going to be a temporary dwelling place, but there is an existence now. I'm going to exist with you. I'm going to be with you. And, and, and though we don't pre-exist, we're going to eternally exist with God. This is what we've all been waiting for. Uh, you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Remember, they ate the apple, the knowledge of good and evil. All of a sudden, mankind wasn't innocent of its behavior anymore, which opened the floodgates to the idea of disobedience to God and sin. So there, they became like us, knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And what did God do two verses before? He, he kicked them out of the garden, right? So there's consequences of sin being kicked out of the garden. First they hid. So there was your separation right there of the heart. Then there was separation from God 
permanent separation from God, even physically when he kicked them out of the garden. And the thing we love about that, again, because we see in Revelation 22 over here, that it promises to those who faithfully endure to eat of the tree of life. This has always been about life, eternal life. Not decaying, temporary life in this body. Not temporary visits from God, which, which accomplished massive steps in redemptive history. Things that not just pursued you, but prepared you for eternity. But God, God fixes and puts back and reconciles, like we talked about Wednesday, his entire creation over a massive period of time. And what does Matthew tell us? That he knows the hairs on our head. He knows our name. He sees you where you sit. And while he's pursuing you today, he's preparing you for glory, as we call it, or heaven. This is why I, I don't think Christianity, technically speaking, is, is a religion. I think a religion, historically speaking, as we look at all other religions, is, is what I would call man and what others what I was told, and, and I think I agree, these are man's pursuits of God. This is how man builds a ladder and steps up to God, figures out God, tries to appease and just try to please God, gets afraid when he's upset and shies down like a coward when his God is not pleased. And here, here's the deal. The Bible clearly, uh, it, it identifies us perfectly when it says that you were dead in sin and we couldn't do anything. And this is where God came to us. So we don't have a word for this. Religion is man stair-stepping up. What, what's the word for, for God stair-stepping down to mankind? It's called Christianity. It's called the story of Jesus. It's, it's the beginning of God's redemptive history to capture man's, man's heart. So we hid from him. <clears throat> He pursued us, and in pursuing us, he prepares us for perfect dwelling with him again. Isn't this better than Christmas? This is better than Christmas. Christmas is packed full of, of powerful meaning, and, and, and the first advent of Jesus means the salvation of his people in our, in our hearts, and it deals with sin and it makes us legally able to stand before God. It prepares our heart relationally to know God, to feel the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and to be made in the image of God. And all that is fantastic and necessary. But what's even better is that we're, all, we're heading somewhere with this. God's doing something with all this, and all of it is to prepare us for eternity with Him. So here's a few things that I think we, we make of this. Um, in an effort to, to close and to, to, to wrap this, though I feel like talking more. I really do, but I won't. Um, I think that pretty well does it, and I think there's three things we, we do in response. When, when I think about uh, God pursuing you and God pursuing me, I think the first question we have to ask is, have I been found? Uh, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man, this is Jesus saying this, For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. It's another way of saying pursue and, and permanent. That salvation will, will mean an eternal life with God. It's not just saved from our sin in a moment, but we're being saved, sanctified, and prepared for 
eternity with God. Jesus came to save and to, to seek and to save the lost. And, and the, the fact is that we know from Genesis 3 is God didn't go anywhere. God didn't go anywhere. Have you been found? Do you, do you realize and do you believe that the story of Jesus was for you? That in sending Christ, that, that God is pursuing you? Have you been found? Have you committed your life to Jesus being found unable to live up to who God is and what he expects from you? And then responding to him because he responds first in love by sending his son responding in faith. Have you been found? I think the second thing is, are you actively being prepared? I, I think we can check out of the preparation process. I think we can check out of the preparation process. And you could talk about, well, if you are truly saved, then, then checking out of the process isn't possible. And, and, but some would also believe that, though, I, I can be truly saved and even though I'm not living it. And the, the, the reality is we, we don't know. And we have a responsibility as, as believers to, to push and to nudge and, and I'll say push again, uh, each other toward Jesus. But I think in the gray there of things that we can't quite decipher in the, the heart of man, we have to ask the question, am I actively being prepared? Am I taking a part in, in, in what the Holy Spirit is doing in me to prepare me for eternity with God? Are you doing that? You call, would you say, I've been found, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm actively taking part in his preparation in my life? What does that mean? That means, are you reading God's word? Are you, are you being challenged and changed by it every day? Are you, do you, when you come in here to worship, are, are these your words just on the screen, and you resonate with these, and you kind of go, man, I, if I were a better writer, those are the kinds of things I would write. Or do you, are you left going, I just don't get it. And if you've been found and you've checked out whatever that gray area reality of how God saves souls, I would encourage you to, to actively participate in your preparation. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If, if other people know you're a believer, you say you're a believer, fight the good fight. If it doesn't feel like a fight, then you're not following Jesus very closely today. Because there's flesh that, that is, is yet to die in our life. There are leadings by God that, that we're still saying no to or not responding to. There are words being spoken through Scripture and, and in the silence and the presence of God that, that we're cluttering and not able to hear. Fight the good fight. Prepare for heaven. Eternity with God. And the last thing is, do you long for eternity? And this is where this hit me this week. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior. Isn't that interesting? That sounds like a Christmas verse. But this is the church. This is New Testament. Paul's talking about looking forward to heaven. But then he's still talking about awaiting a Savior. Because we can be saved in our soul, but, but our body in this world is it's yet to be saved. And he says, Who will transform our lowly body, like we read a minute ago, to be like the glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And that's us withstanding the glory of God. So the short of it is, 
God pursues you. Take steps throughout the course of time that you could never have taken. This is his love for us. These are the things he's done to restore what we broke. And there was a relationship with God on this side of heaven that is beyond fruitful and worth it. But then to also look forward to one day where sin is not a problem. Won't parenting be better without sin? Won't being an employee, being a husband, a wife, wouldn't that be better without sin? As far as we know, we won't have those things in in heaven, in eternity with God, the new Jerusalem, the new earth. But imagine a world with no sin. And imagine a world brought back to its original purpose in the full presence of God. This is why Christ died. This is why he came. This is the culmination of, of the Emmanuel concept that God would finally, fully, and forever be with us. And he did it all because he loves us. Let's pray.